Garrison and Toth presents The Shift with Jack Johnson on ESPN Kansas City, 1510 AM and 94.5 FM. We are back with another edition of The Shift on 94.5 FM and 1510 AM ESPN Kansas City. I'm your host, Jack Johnson, alongside Marco Marquez. Shout out to our presenting sponsors, starting with Garrettson and Toth. They handle the most complex felony, federal, or state criminal defense cases. You'll find them in doing that successfully, helping criminal defendants all over the Kansas City area and Northeast Kansas for years. Also, be sure to visit Kim Howard and Associates Agency at 105th and Metcalf in Overland Park. Or give Kim and her team a call at 913-649-2002. That's 913-649-2002 for a quote on your home and auto insurance today. And also one more reminder that if you call that number and mention that you heard their ad here on The Shift, the American Family Insurance ad, Kim and her team will give you a $10 gift card to Starbucks to use on whatever you would like, coffee, tea, breakfast items. It's your 10 bucks. All you got to do is call that number at 913-649-2002 and mention that you heard their ad here on The Shift. Now, we will have some Royals stuff to go over later on in the show. We'll have some audio from Royals third baseman Hunter Dozier and Royals first baseman Vinny Pasquantino. But to kick off the show, let's recap what happened last night in Manhattan, Kansas, as the Wildcats got maybe their most impressive performance of the year over the ninth-ranked Baylor Bears, winning 75-65, a dominant second half. If they're trailing 34-31 to the first 20 minutes of the game, the Cats go on to outscore Baylor by 13 in the second half. Keontae Johnson leads the Cats with 25 points on 17 shots. Marquise Noel does turn in a double-double with 14 points, 10 assists, and get this, no turnovers. That has been a problem for Noel this year but was nearly flawless last night in taking care of the basketball. Cam Carter nearly double-double with 10 points and 8 boards. Naquan Tomlin, 8 points, 8 boards. Desi Sills also had 6-5 and to round out the starting five. Off the bench, they got 12 points in production from David Gasson and Ishmael Massoud. Those two only missed one shot in six attempts. So overall, I I think the most well-rounded second half you'd seen from Kansas State this season I think having the limited turnovers led to that only seven for Kansas State last night to Baylor's 13 and I wouldn't say Baylor played particularly terrible they shot 40 percent from the floor that's not great it's also not awful Kansas State shot 48 percent on 58 attempts and K-State also shot less than 20 percent from deep so it's not like they went nuclear from beyond the arc Baylor was a little bit better. They hit 11 three-pointers, but for the most part, Baylor's guards only got you know, half the production they did from Lawrence on Saturday. You know, they get 23 from Keontae George, 16 from LJ Cryer. Other than that, I mean, Adam Flagler was 1 of 13 from the floor. Bridges, 2 of 6. Flo Thamba only took one shot. Chamwa Chachua only had 11 points off the bench. So Baylor went into that game, and what I thought to be a little bit of a revenge game, you lose the first time around in Waco in overtime. You're coming off a 17-point loss to Kansas. You want to take your anger out on somebody. But props to Kansas State for being more than prepared for this game. Now 21-7 and on the year and firmly in third place in the Big 12. And if we're being quite honest here, I think they've almost locked in 
a top four finish in the Big 12. I don't see Iowa State catching up. TCU is going to have to win out. Same with Oklahoma State. So Kansas State, after their win against Baylor last night, feels like they're going to finish at least third or fourth worst in the conference. At worst, not fourth worst. So Kansas State, left on their schedule, has two more road games, one against Oklahoma State, one against West Virginia, and their final home game, Senior Day, will be against the Sooners on March 4th. As for Baylor, they will look to bounce back against Texas on Saturday, then have to go to Stillwater, then host Iowa State. I think it's pretty safe to assume at this point this Kansas State team is going to be able to finish top three. I think I would give them a better chance schedule-wise in looking at Baylor and Kansas State for the Cats to finish in the top three in the Big 12. And I think it will come down to Kansas and Texas as to who will win. They both have a two-game lead with just three games to go. But going back to Kansas State and what has made them so, so much better in comparison to last year, they are just different at home. They really are. 15-1 and this year. They're 3-6 and on the road. But they've made up for their poor road performances of late with being able to cash in. Hell, they could have been the only undefeated team at home in the Big 12 this year if they just would have hung on to a double-digit lead against Texas. Now, if it wasn't for a brutal, and I mean their worst performance of the season in the second half against Texas, K-State would have the only undefeated record in conference play. And you got to be able to win at home. If you, It, it kind of goes without saying, but if you do slip up more than twice at home, you're not going to finish in the top half of the conference. You're not going to finish top three. And Kansas State, to go from preseason bottom of the standings to where they are now, and also in the middle of that, have some bad stretches. I think most people, including myself, after they lost by double digits to Oklahoma, following their loss to Texas Tech, I'm going, I don't know where this team's going to end up now. They look really tired. They look fatigued. But now have back-to-back wins over top 25 opponents in Iowa State and Baylor, both coming at home. So maybe it was the perfect time to regroup, reset, and take down two really tough opponents in your own house. And if Kansas State were to play those teams on the road at that point in the season, maybe it goes the other way. But K-State took care of business against Baylor this year. And good for Jerome Tang, who was an assistant for 20 years under Scott Drew at Baylor. And the first time he gets to go head-to-head against his former coach or the head coach of his program, undefeated, 2-0. and And who knows if these teams meet back up in Kansas City. But last night, I mean, you can really rule out this team's going to be fatigued now. It only took two games for me to sort of wipe away that thought. Now, you're going to lose at times on the road in the Big 12, but here's the positive thing for Kansas State. Well, they do have Oklahoma State and West Virginia to close out the year. Those will be tough matchups any way you look at it. But at the same time, you're getting to the point in the season now where there are no more road games. You could go into neutral sites where you don't have as many fans. But K-State's about to enter the part of the season where it's all neutral sites from here on out. You know, you'll get Kansas City, so that can be favorably more home than, than usual. And if you have a top three seed, you'll likely be in Des Moines. So you could have more of a favorable crowd in those games from the Big 12 tournament onto the NCAA tournament. But I don't really think their problems on the road are going to be magnified or amplified when we hit postseason because you're not going into a hostile environment where everybody's against you. And Kansas State, yeah, the last month or two, they have not been good. 
They have one of the worst records in the Big 12 on the road. Oklahoma's 1-7, West Virginia's 2-7, Tech's 3-6, TCU's 3-6, and, and Kansas State's 3-6. The only team right now in the Big 12 with a winning record at home, or on the road, excuse me, is Kansas at 7-3. Texas is 500 at 4-4. Four four. Baylor's sub-500 at 4-5. and five. Iowa State is 2-8. and eight. Uh, That actually would be, if I'm not mistaken, the worst record of the most losses on the road this season. So you have great teams that are tough outs, but some are just better at home than others. And Kansas State is arguably, next to Kansas, the best home team in the conference. I could give the nod to Texas as well, who's 16-1 and this year. Last night, though, I think it just goes to show you that Jerome Tang has really brought back Kansas State basketball in less than one season. I mean, you go back to some of the Frank Martin years, and it was really tough to go into Bramwich Coliseum and win. And if you did, it was a great boost to the resume. And I'm not going to sit here and say, oh, Baylor is, is still worried about Saturday's loss or they're down in the dumps or they're struggling now. No, Kansas State beat them head-to-head. Kansas State beat them straight up. If anything, Baylor should have had the advantage last night. You're coming off a bad loss in terms of blowing a big-time lead on the road. But these are big boys. You had time to regroup. You had two days to regroup. It's the Big 12. You can't be sulking about losses that happened multiple days ago. And Baylor also should have had the motivation of, hey, they came into Waco earlier this year and beat us in overtime. We have to get that game back. We have to split with them. And not only did they struggle to hang around in the second half, I think for the better part, they got their ass kicked. And when... Kansas State started to get that momentum, started to get the confidence. Baylor just didn't want to fight anymore. And I think that showed kind of a weak mentality of the team is that, yeah, they can get hot in the first half, and they did. They went on a 21-3 to run at one point. But when things don't go well for Baylor, at least what we've seen the last couple of weeks, they kind of crawl into a shell. They, they just aren't the team that I think we saw back in mid to late January. I mean, their loss to Texas, it was a close loss. They lost by five. Then they got a four-game stretch where they were playing three of those four at home against the bottom teams in the conference. Then when they're tested with two of the top teams in the conference in Kansas and Kansas State, they got punched in the mouth and didn't want to respond. And now they get Texas at home, and no, Baylor's not going to win the conference. That's pretty much out at this point. But you're going to need something going into Kansas City. And I think this is what we saw from Baylor back in late December, early January, when they went on their three-game losing streak in conference play. They got punched in the mouth by Iowa State, back down. They got punched by TCU, lost by one, and didn't respond. Came back home against Kansas State, had a chance to regroup and go, all right, we're not going to make it three in a row. And kind of just fell flat on their back. And then they responded really well. But when you look at their schedule, maybe that's what the problem was for Baylor, is that when they got really hot, when they went on those stretches, they were just beaten up on not very good teams. They did beat Kansas on January 23rd. And Kansas right now, betting odds, has the highest chance to win the Big 12 outright. But here's who they beat after their three-game losing streak. They beat West Virginia in Morgantown when West Virginia was really, really, really struggling. I still think they didn't have a Big 12 win at that point. 
Then they beat Oklahoma State at home. They beat Texas Tech in Lubbock. They beat Oklahoma in Norman. Then they beat Kansas. Then they beat Arkansas. Of that stretch of games, which would have been a six-game winning streak, one was ranked. And the only team in that stretch is still ranked, and that is Kansas. Then they lost to Texas. Then in their four-game winning streak from February 4th to February 13th, Baylor beat Tech, Oklahoma, TCU without Mike Miles, and then West Virginia. And just to double-check here, I'm pretty sure, yeah, TCU did not have Mike Miles in this game. And they didn't even have Eddie Lampkin. So Baylor beat TCU by four and a very injury-ridden TCU team. Then beat West Virginia. Tested again on the road against a ranked team. Lost to Kansas. Lost to Kansas State. It is still a good Baylor team, but maybe their record was inflated a little bit. And go over their entire stretch of 20 wins this year. They have one, two, three, three. Three wins over top 25 teams. They've beaten Gonzaga, they've beaten UCLA, and they've beaten Kansas. Of their other wins, Mississippi Valley State, Norfolk State, Northern Colorado, McNeese State, Tarleton State, Washington State, Northwestern State, Nichols State, and the teams we just mentioned in Big 12 play. I think Baylor beat up on some really bad teams in non-con, and it didn't really prep them that well to play against the top dogs in the conference. And as we've seen, Kansas State swept them. They did get Kansas and Waco, but then Kansas just beat them by 17 in Allen Fieldhouse. They lost to TCU when TCU had Mike Miles. They lost to Iowa State when they were at Hilton Coliseum, lost by 15. And I think we are just starting to see that maybe, and hell, I don't think I'm going out on a limb that much, I think Jerome Tang meant a lot to Baylor's coaching staff. And it kind of goes without saying, when you're there for 20 years, you have the cohesiveness, you know all the players, they pair well with Scott Drew, but I think we're seeing in the first year without Jerome Tang that Scott Drew is a middle-of-the-pack coach, and yeah, he's got a national championship. You can never take that away from Scott Drew. And there's always been criticisms of Scott Drew, right? He complains a little bit. Super nice guy, by the way. You've ever been down to Big 12 Media Day? Scott Drew is one of the nicest coaches out there. But nice won't always win you the big-time games. And I think Jerome Tang, what we've seen in just year one at Kansas State, where his Kansas State Wildcats are going to finish ahead of Baylor when Baylor was projected to finish second or third in the conference and K-State by far and away was predicted to finish last, I think it goes to show you that Jerome Tang was a big reason why Baylor was really good for a lot of years. And now Scott Drew is 0-2 against his former assistant. And in these games, I mean, last night, I think what was very telling is that Kansas State is a team that when Keontae Johnson has performances like that, they're going to be one of the toughest outs in March. They're going to be incredibly dangerous, just as dangerous as any other three or four seed. And I think as long as Kansas State wins two of their next three and one game in Kansas City, I think it's pretty safe to say they're a lock for the three seed. They're going to be a really tough out. And last night impressed me, I think more so than any other win they've had on the schedule this year. I thought it was impressive when they hung 116 on Texas and Austin. I thought it was impressive when they won in Waco in overtime. I thought it was impressive when they beat Kansas in overtime. Last night, it was the fact they trailed at half by three. They surrendered a 21-3 run to Baylor in the first half. 
and just dominated in the second half. Completely ran away with the game. Got the shots they wanted. Didn't turn the ball over. Didn't shoot it well from deep. And weren't that great from the free throw line through the first, I would say, 33, 34 minutes. But when they needed to ice the game, guys stepped up and were were nails. Were absolutely nails in the game as the Cats go on to win 75-65. Back to the point of Baylor, Marco, and looking at where they are at. And I think when I was looking at their non-conference schedule before the show and thinking, I mean, they do have a big win against UCLA. They beat Gonzaga, and that certainly shouldn't be just washed away. But at times, when teams set up their non-conference schedule to just be a bunch of gimme games, a bunch of bye games, can it show this late in the season that, yeah, you still have the Big 12. You're going to be tested every single night. But I think with Texas and Kansas, those two teams, and Kansas State for that matter, a couple of times, having those preseason tournaments, playing you know, Power 5 schools at the tail end of their schedule. It kind of feels like teams that don't load up their non-conference schedule, it can sort of show its effects at the tail end when you are tired, you are worn out, you haven't been in those grinded-out type of games as much as you would have liked to back in November and December. I mean, for this Baylor team to be 20-8 and eight and only three of those wins be against top 25 teams, I mean, is that more so of a, okay, they're just not as good as we think they are, or is it because they were never really tested early on in the season? Well, um, Baylor, too, was hurt, but we're talking non-con schedule here. Yeah. They, I mean, they were they were hurt to start out with the Big 12. Like, they got off to a, as you pointed out, not a great start when conference play um, swung in. But um, as we get closer and I always believe this with conference scheduling too um and and it's something that we're seeing right now with or we saw last year with KU but your team matters uh in this part of the schedule February and March but also your coaching is a hell of a lot important too um and it's an x factor it it can become an immense uh, x factor when play when when you're playing games in February, March, and deep into uh, and then of course hopefully get to April. But I, I just think that and that's something that I've never been as impressed with Scott Drew as a head coach. Yeah. Um, the 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 seasons where they wow you and Baylor. I mean the national title run season that was just a crazy loaded um, Baylor team. It was the COVID year he, too. Yeah, and, and there's no and I, I don't mean that in a disrespectful way because I think Scott Drew. Um, go outside the Big Twelve. He is one of the best coaches in all of college basketball. That's what. That's what. That's one of the reasons why the Big Twelve is such a um, tough basketball conference is because of the talent that goes in there, the teams that are in there, but also the coaching. I mean, hell, how many times have we credited uh, Oklahoma State's head coach uh, this season? They're one of the bottom teams and have been throughout the whole uh, conference season, but yet. Uh, hell, even uh, Bob Huggins still gets the respect that he deserves uh, as a head coach. Um, the way that, th- and that's why the Big Twelve uh, will um, have. You'll see the success of them in March, uh, like last year, how we saw with Iowa State. It's just the coaching matters so much, not only in college basketball but in the Big Twelve conference also. So I think that. With Baylor, they just have gotten they just have gotten out they've they've not only have gotten outplayed in the last 
two games where they've lost, but in these back-to-back losses, but also they've just kind of gotten out-coached too. And I'm not saying Jerome Tang is a better coach than Scott Drew, but he's been one of the best coaches, not only in the Big 12 this year, but in college basketball. So he's not K-State is not a slack of a team because they have the motivator and the uh in the facilitator not facilitator but this um the schemer in Jerome in Jerome Tang he's not a nobody as a coach and he's making that no, well known uh in his first season with K-State so that's just the thing with Baylor I think that not necessarily the scheduling at the beginning of the year that caught them. They didn't challenge themselves enough, um, putting themselves against, putting themselves up against enough top twenty-five teams. Um, although they're not, although they're not doing it as much as, or not scheduling uh, as much tough talent as some other teams are. Uh, you go to Kim Palm right now; they're still a respectful fourteenth uh, ranked by um, just one of the adjusters. We can look at, um, of course, Bragatology. Um, Joe 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 Lenardi has them as a two seed right now. Um, in in the field, but who does he have potentially going up against a tough uh, in the second round? Maybe a tough Providence team or a scrappy Auburn team. Yeah. That's where something could come to bite the Bears in the butt. Is those rounds after uh, the not necessarily the Big Twelve tournament or the start of the NCAA tournament. But the late, but the but the uh, rounds that come after the first, um, the opening weekend, um, in March. So that's something we could see for Baylor, uh, a high seed, but an early exit. Whereas K State, we could see them high seed, but possibly get past the first weekend and turn into a Sweet Sixteen team, which of course goes above and beyond the expectations that were put in front of them um, come preseason, uh, back in the preseason. Yeah, it really felt like, you know, Ken Palm does love Baylor, but looking back at their non-conference schedule, they had they had a pretty tough non-conference tournament They with Virginia and UCLA. They lost to Virginia, lost or beat UCLA by five. One game that really slides under the radar for me with a, against a good Marquette team, Baylor lost by nearly 30 to Marquette on the road in non-conference play. Then they, they did bounce back with a one-point win over Gonzaga. But maybe it's those games in between. Everybody's got their bye games, their gimme games. But to me, it kind of feels like with turning into production, successful performances, having those wins, they didn't really stack up. Lost to Virginia, did beat UCLA, who's top five. They beat Gonzaga, but a Gonzaga team that's not as good as they were in the last couple of years. And then it started to show in Big 12 play. They just weren't as good. When going up against those top 25 teams, lost to TCU when they were ranked, lost to Texas, lost to Kansas, lost to Kansas State. And yeah, I'm kind of with you. I'm, I'm just not that sold this year on Scott Drew without Jerome Tang. It's going to be still a good Baylor team. We've seen Baylor be good in stretches, but I think of late in conference play, their record's been inflated because they've beaten up on some of the lesser teams in the conference. They're not going out there and dominating you know, a team like Texas. They're not going out there and do- and nobody's going to dominate the top half teams, but, you know, getting swept by Kansas State, losing to Texas on the road is is not a bad loss. There's, none of those are bad losses, but it's just what separates, I think, Kansas and Texas and maybe Kansas State from Baylor is that in some of those big-time games with the pressure on them, those three have come through. Baylor, not so much as they fall to 20-8 and eight on the year. Kansas State moves to 21 and seven after a 75-65 win over the Bears last night. We'll take our first break of the show. When we come back, we got some Royals audio to play for you from yesterday in surprise from Vinny Pasquantino 
and Hunter Dozier. That's next on 94.5 FM and 1510 AM ESPN, Kansas City. Back here on The Shift on 94.5 FM and 1510 AM ESPN Kansas City. I'm your host, Jack Johnson, alongside Marco Marquez. Been a more busy week down in Surprise, Arizona, as the Royals are gearing up for their first spring training game of the year. That'll happen on Friday. But we've had some of our very own personnel down in Surprise this week in Seren Petro and Todd Lebo, so they've had the chance to get plenty of audio which we now have the benefit of using. Uh, we've been able to get some Matt Quattraro audio. We now get some Scott Barlow audio, MJ Melendez audio. We'll try to play just about every piece of audio before the end of the week leading up to that first spring training game against the Texas Rangers. But for our first piece of audio, let's hear from Royals third baseman Hunter Dozier. I understand where everybody is feeling with Hunter Dozier, not really wanting him to be the opening day third baseman, Sort of tired of having a black hole in the lineup. But here's the deal. Hunter Dozier is under contract. And right now the Royals don't have a definitive third baseman. They don't have a guy to plug in there that's played a lot of innings at that position other than Hunter Dozier. Now there's always a chance somebody gets cut from another organization. Somebody shines in spring training and you can give third base to that player. But I think going into spring training... It is Hunter Dozier's job. Now, J.J. Piccolo and I think Matt Quattraro both kind of mentioned that, hey, it's not going to be an everyday thing of Hunter Dozier just getting 140, 145 games at third base. But the thing is, the Royals do have a little bit of a problem. You can't just plug in a guy there that's only had 50, 60 innings at third base and put him there at opening day and expect him to run with the job. I mean, I want Nate Eaton to get the third base job, but at the end of the day, Nate Eden is more of a utility guy, and he did play third base last year, but he doesn't have a ton of experience at third base. You can't just plug Nicky Lopez there. He hasn't had a lot of experience at third base. I don't want to see Bobby Witt Jr. at third base, even if it's Michael Garcia getting the start at shortstop. I think you want Bobby Witt Jr. to be the shortstop of the future. Maybe Michael Garcia needs to learn how to play third base, or somebody else in the minor leagues down there. I mean, I know you drafted Caden Wallace out of Arkansas last year. He could be your third baseman in the future, but Caden Wallace isn't ready right now. Hunter Dozier's a guy that's on your roster. You're paying him to be on the roster, and unless he bombs early on, he's going to be there playing every single day. But without further ado, here is what Hunter Dozier had to say yesterday down in Surprise, Arizona, about the upcoming season and what he's hoping for in what would be, I believe, his age 32 or 33 season. But here is Royals third baseman Hunter Dozier. Okay, first things first, I mean, you've been in the major leagues for a long time. There's going to be some rule changes. Um, you've been talking to some of the younger guys who've been in the minors about how, how the game will kind of play out on some of these pitch clock stuff and the shift and all that stuff. Yeah. Um, I mean, personally, I, I'm, I'm excited about it. Um, I think... There's games last year we were playing that were four-hour games, um, and it's, that's just too long for a game, um, too long for the fans, too long for us. Um, and everything I'm hearing from the guys that were in AAA or in the minor leagues last year, they were playing two, two-and-a-half-hour games every night. Um, 
game was a little more fast paced. Um, you didn't have so much waiting around. Um, so I, you know, it's going to be a little different at first. Um, glad we're doing it in spring, um, just to kind of see what it feels like. But I mean, I'm, I'm all for it. So the pitch clock is probably the thing that's going to people will notice yeah. the most. Fans just sitting there watching. Um, have you generally been a guy who's ready to go in the box, or do you step out and need a little time? Do you think it's going to have an effect on you in that way? I don't think it will. Um, I've heard the biggest thing is like when you foul a ball off. You know, sometimes you foul it off and you kind of watch it. Well, right when you make contact and the pitcher gets the ball back, that time starts. Um, so I think just kind of be aware of that. But I don't think I'm a guy that takes a lot, you know, a lot of time in the box. Um, I guess we'll find out. But um, I don't think, you know, I don't think most hitters will have a problem. I think it's going to be more on the pitchers. And the shift as well. Um, they haven't shifted a ton on on you as much, but uh, just what are your thoughts about that and how it may affect some guys? Yeah, I mean, I think for lefty hitters, like um, it's going to open up some parts of the field for them. Um, I think me and Benny were actually talking yesterday. Ground balls are going to get through. More ground balls are going to start to get, you know, through. Um, so it almost comes down like you know, two strikes. Just find a way to put it in play because you might have a chance. Um, I don't know if it's going to take away from you know, kind of. The the new method of hitting hitting fly balls or stuff like that. Um, but it'll be interesting to see kind of how it plays out. Um, I think teams will still position their players really well, like as they can. Um, but yeah, it's gonna be it's gonna be interesting to see. So you're the old man around here now, right? You got a lot of kids around. A lot of changes last year at the end of the season when you know Wick got traded away and, and Benny. Um, what do you think about this young group of guys and how you fit into the to the mix here? Yeah, I mean, um, they're they're a good group of guys. Um, they came up last year and did a great job, brought some energy. Um, I I don't feel like an old guy, uh, and I don't feel like they're super young. Um, I just feel like you know it sounds cheesy, but I feel like we're just you know, we're a team. Um, doesn't really feel like old, young, stuff like that. But um, it's fun to have them. They played well last year. I'm excited to see what we do this year. Um, yeah. What, do you, what about your spot on this team? What positions you're going to be playing? Have you, have you gotten any instruction or, or clarification on that? Yeah. Um, right now they want me to focus just on third. Um, get back to getting comfortable over there um, like I was in 19 when I played there every day, 18, 19. Um, so I was encouraging to hear um, and then I think later in the spring, just kind of mix in some first outfield. But I think for right now, it's going to be third. So and that's one of the things that, that it's always kind of struck me about the last maybe five years of Royal Space. But a lot of you guys played a lot of positions. Is it better to just know, hey, this is I'm a third baseman? Is you are you more comfortable that way? Well, yeah, I feel like when you're allowed to, when you only play one position, you, you can get the best you can at one position. Um, I've always enjoyed bouncing around, um, but I think it's definitely taken away from my defense ability because one day I'm taking ground balls at first, one day I'm taking it at third or taking outfield fly balls and stuff like that. So you're missing days to get better at a certain position where now this whole spring I can focus just on third, um, try to get as best I can over there, get feeling comfortable like I used to be. Um, so, yeah, I think, I think it's definitely going to help me out.
And we've got a new manager, right? You've played for lots of managers now for, for the Royals. What are your thoughts that you've, uh, what his message has been to you guys and uh, how you fit in the mix with Q? Yeah, he brings something uh, totally different. He's just really relaxed. Um, he's just, I don't know, he just, it's a, it's good vibes in here. Um, he seems like a great guy. Um, first couple days of camp, it's been really good. Um, I think I think it's you know we're going to start building a culture around here that you know we needed to build, um, but I think it's going to be a fun year. That was Royals third baseman Hunter Dozier talking with our very own Todd Lebo down in Surprise, Arizona. I think when you are in a, in a year like this for the Kansas City Royals, and it's been like this for the last four or five years. You know, the fans want all the young guys to play, including myself. I would love to see the young guys out there, but baseball doesn't always work out the way you want it to. You can't always assemble a roster of of eight or nine guys that have a combined, you know, nine years of experience. Now, you do need some veterans on the team. You need depth, and that's another thing, too. Hunter Dozier could break camp with this team and be a bench player. He could just be a depth piece, and you need that. Because when you have guys like Michael Massey, you have a Edward Olivares who's been known to be injury-prone. You have a guy like Kyle Isbell, you know, MJ Melendez who hasn't played a lot of outfield, Vinny Pasquantino who hasn't had a full year. Uh, depending on how those guys look, I mean, I think the Royals, even if guys are struggling, they're not going to bench them for Hunter Dozier. But there's going to be a time this season, I mean, it's baseball, it's a 162-game slate, where a player gets banged up. No, he fouls the ball off his ankle, and he's out for three or four days. You need to be able to trust a guy to go out there and fill that position. I'm not saying Hunter Dozier is great defensively, great offensively, a great base run. That may be the best part of Hunter Dozier's game. He's above average running the bases for a guy his size. Other than that, he doesn't bring too much to the table. But at least he has somewhat of pop in his bat. He hits the ball hard when making contact. And maybe these last couple of years... It's been due to injury. You know, he's never really been able to settle in. You go back to 2021. No, he, opening day. Injures his wrist, I believe it was. Then he had a concussion later on that year. Last year, I think it was more so that he just never got into rhythm. I can't really give him an excuse for 2022. In 2020, he had COVID. And he got hot for a little bit, but I don't think he fully recovered from COVID in that 2020 season. I'm not advocating for Hunter Dozier to be an everyday player. I don't want to see that. But at the same time, the Royals do need depth. They need guys who have been there before. They need a guy who can play third, first, and right field and left field. Hunter Dozier can do that. Now, I don't want to see him out there on opening day. But at the same time, Hunter Dozier is going to have to have a spot on this team. Unless they trade him away, they're not just going to eat his contract and cut him. I just The Royals have not shown me they're willing to do that over the last couple of years. And I don't think it's more so that they believe Hunter Dozier is going to turn things around. They just maybe think that Nate Eaton's not ready to play third. They may not want Nicky Lopez at third base because he's so good at short and second base. Who knows what Matt Quattraro and this team are thinking right now with roster construction. You know, J.J. Piccolo said, hey, you know, Hunter Dozier's our third baseman. I'm not sold on it because he also said he wanted to get Ryan O'Hearn 300, 400 bats. He wanted to play him more than he did last year. And then what happened? Ryan O'Hearn was DFA'd. You know, sometimes general managers just say those things to give the support to their players. And Hunter Dozier's a veteran. He's a guy that's been through it. He's been on the team since 2016. No, he made his debut back then. I didn't play much in 2017. Did play all in 2018. Was there in 19, 20, 21, and 22. 
and he gave him the big-time contract after a above-average 2019 season. But time is running out on Hunter Dozier, and who knows if this is his last chance to grab a job in spring training. But good job by Todd Lebo there with a great interview with Hunter Dozier. Before we head to break, let's hear from one more player for the Kansas City Royals and a guy that I think is more inclined to have a successful season and who I believe to maybe be a sneaky option as the all-star representative for the Kansas City Royals. That would be first baseman Vinny Pasquantino per multiple projections. Zips, fan graphs, Baseball America, they anticipate him to be the Royals' best offensive player. And I think in the small sample size we had last year, that wouldn't shock many of us in Kansas City. One guy that is really just becoming a fan favorite in Kansas City would be Vinny Pasquantino. Here is our second piece of audio with the Royals' first baseman. All right, so we're here in spring training. Got a lot of new things going on, new rules and stuff like that. What do you, uh, you've, you've dealt with some of these in the minor leagues before. What do you think about kind of these rules and how they'll play out here in the majors? I'm interested to see it. Uh, I got to see it a little bit in the minor league, so I'm interested to see how it incorporates itself to the major league game. Obviously, we won't know until Friday and even probably the first two weeks of spring training or so we won't really know, but I'm excited to, you know, I'm happy the game is decided to try to be progressive when it comes to changes and it'll be interesting to see and I think from a fan aspect it'll be really cool to watch. So the, some of the data they show us is like that minor league games were like 22 minutes faster. Is the pitch clock really the thing that will affect things the most or the shift? What I mean what do you what I guess what rule for you is the one that's maybe gonna have the biggest effect on the game? Well biggest impact on my game will probably be the shift. Um, haven't seen it in a while, so it'll be interesting to see. I mean, who knows? It could, it might not. It was, it's a waiting game, right? So I think the pitch clock would be cool. It did. Like, the first week, I was skeptical of it when we did it in the minor leagues, but then after the data came out, and it was like, wow, these games are they're moving. Like, there's just always something going on. It's not necessarily that the, the game itself is quicker. It's just, it's moving. Like, Action. there's not as much standstill, and, and for me, I think it makes me better because I'm moving. I'm not waiting around, and I know that pitchers have said they're going to try to use it to their advantage the same way a hitter will use it to his advantage. So it'll be it'll be more of a mind game, which I think will be cool. There won't be as much kind of just standing around watching, and I think that's exciting. For you at the plate, have you been a step out of the box, mess with your gloves guy, or have you generally been a guy who's just in there ready to go? Uh, it kind of depends. It depends on how I feel. Um, so I've kind of gone back and forth on it, but we don't really have the time to do that anymore. No back so, and forth anymore. You're no here, right? Forth. So the, it'll be funny when, especially guys who haven't dealt with it before, is like if you hit a foul ball and the umpire gives it right back to the pitcher right away, there you the go. clock starts. So there was a few times in AAA last year where I'd have to like run back into the box uh, just to make sure I was ready. And, and there's some leniency there with kind of what's going on. Like if I hit one off my shin or right. something like that, there's, you know, there's room for, hey, okay, you know, more just kind of feel with it. So it'll be interesting to see. I know for the umpires, too, just talking to guys last year, they're interested to see how it's going to work because a lot of the big league umpires have never dealt with these rule changes, so I'm curious to see how they incorporate it, too. All right, so you've been here for a little bit this week. What are your thoughts about the new regime here, right? we got a new manager. Um, what, are, what are your thoughts of Q so far? Love him. Uh, hard to say just because we haven't been around him that much, but don't have a bad thing to say about him, that's for sure. So it's been exciting to see kind of how we're working, and it's pretty much a brand-new staff other than – um, pretty much the hitting department is the same, which is exciting for us hitters because we have familiarity with, with who we're working with. So for us, I think it's been a pretty easy transition. Um, they're very open with us. They're you know, very good at communicating. And, and 
the guys they brought in so far have been really good, and we're excited to see how it goes. So last year you came up and you were you know with more of a veteran team, right? And then some trades happened late, and it kind of got young. It feels like a really young, energized group here right now. We just what are your thoughts about like the camaraderie of having a group of guys who are all kind of young together? Yeah, it's definitely interesting, and from what you hear about from people across the league, it's not very common. So, but for us, that doesn't really mean anything to us because the goal is still go out there and win baseball games. So, you know, we had a meeting yesterday and it was told to us, you know, you're, we're still major league players just because we're a younger group in terms. I mean, Cleveland's still younger than us, I believe. So they won the division. So it, it doesn't mean that just because we're young doesn't mean we can't win. And for us, that's just our mindset is go out there and, you know, play our tails off and see what happens. Do you pay attention to, like, the projections, like win totals and stuff like that from, are you aware of, like, no. the protections or anything like that? No. I mean, it, it, people don't think much of the Royals outside, I guess, the data and all that stuff. That's not anything that's on your guys' mind, though. No, that's the first time I've heard of it, to be honest. I, I'm not worried about that. So I'm worried about taking the field and seeing what we can do. All right, so tell me about your offseason. I see on Twitter and stuff, looks like you had a great, yeah. like, fun time going everywhere. What was the most fun you had uh, going to some of these events and things in the offseason? I know you loved your Jets. Yeah. And it didn't end up, end up exactly right. And you were in a lot of those games. But you wrestling and uh, Chiefs games and all that yeah, stuff. Yeah, I think the most special weekend was when I went to the Royal Rumble, the WWE Royal Rumble, and then parlayed that into the AFC Championship game. Uh, and I was able to go with my fiance to the football game. So that was just an incredible weekend. And very blessed to be in that position where I was able to do some things. And But more importantly, I'm just excited to get going here. How have the Chiefs fans been to you uh, that, that you're a Royal and they want probably to like the Chiefs, but you love your Jets? Have they been nice to you on social media? Yeah, I think they understand. And, uh, you know, if I was a Raiders fan or a Chargers fan or a Broncos fan, maybe it'd be different. But right. I, think that, I think I'm in a good spot, like in the Jets. So we'll see what happens. Now, you know, J.J. Piccolo loves the Eagles. Yeah. He was at the Super Bowl and he was, you know, on the, all the stations talking about the Eagles and that's what he does. So he had it really rough. That yeah. wasn't very good. That, that was a tough one for him. Are you guys uh, giving him any business about the Eagles losing the Super Bowl? Yeah, I have. But for him, he was in a no-lose situation. Right. Either way, he's in a good spot. So for him, I think he's doing all right. Right. So tell me about just kind of last one here, like maybe your goals for this year. Um, you set things like that. What are you What are you planning on trying to get accomplished this year? No, I don't set. I don't set goals like that. It's just for me. I just want to have good at bats when I go up there. That's it. Try to be a good teammate, win ball games. So for me, those are my goals for the season. There he goes. That's Royals first baseman Vinny Pasquantino with our very own Todd Lebo. I mean, I think for the Royals lineup, for it to really click, it's going to be anchored by a guy like Vinny Pasquantino. Maybe that's unfair for just a second-year player, but we saw last year, I mean, to take on the responsibility of hitting cleanup for, no, not a very good baseball team. But when you have Salvador Perez out there and you're hitting behind Salvador Perez, there's expectation for you. But I think for the first time in a long time, the Royals have a young hitter that is acceptable by, or that is accepted by the modern era of baseball. He hits the ball hard. He walks a lot. He doesn't swing and miss a lot. He doesn't chase a lot. The Royals have had the complete opposite of that with all their hitters. Even Salvador Salvador Perez, who for, gosh, five, six, seven, maybe eight years was the most feared hitter in terms of pure power in the lineup. He chased everything, and he didn't walk. But he did hit the ball really hard and hit the ball out of the ballpark a lot of times. Vinny Pasquantino... He does some of the things Salvador Perez does and more, which is why I think he's going to be the best offensive player on this team, assuming he stays healthy. You know, we got a little bit banged up at the tail end of last year, but man, the expectation should be sky high for a guy like Vinny Pasquantino. And if the Royals are lucky enough 
his offensive power can maybe lead to guys like Bobby Wood Jr. and MJ Melendez getting more protection in the lineup. You're not having to, you can't pitch around MJ Melendez or Bobby Wood Jr. because you know you don't want to load up the bases for a guy like Vinny P. But to me right now, I think he's the front runner alongside Bobby Wood Jr. to be the team's all-star representative later on in July this year. We'll take our final break of the show. When we come back, we'll wrap it up with some fact or fiction. That's next on The Shift on ESPN Kansas City. It's The Shift on 94.5 FM and 15 AM ESPN Kansas City. I'm your host, Jack Johnson, alongside Marco Marquez. Some more Royals news per Annie Rogers, Royals beat writer for MLB.com. Royals left-handed pitcher Daniel Lynch will start the Cactus League opener on Friday against the Rangers. Jose Quas, Josh Stallmont likely to get work in that day as well. Right-handed pitcher Mike Myers. How fitting is that, too? Mike Myers, a former local guy, too. I believe he went to Shawnee Mission... East or West, or maybe even South. I'm not really sure. I'll have to go and double-check on that. But Mike Myers, a local guy, also pitched for the Angels for a long time, and an A-grade name. Uh, You pitch really well. You can be more of a menacing guy in the back end of the bullpen with a name like that. But Myers expected to go on Saturday against the Rangers as well. Myers, a non-roster invite to spring training. All right, before we wrap up the show, let's do some fact or fiction. Five questions, five takes in under five minutes. Marco, fire away. Jack, fact or fiction, K-State finishes third in the Big 12 Conference. I think that is the most likely scenario. I haven't seen the Vegas odds now about where the top three teams would finish, or if you can even bet on where the third-place team or who the third-place team will be in the Big 12 before the conclusion of the regular season. But looking at Baylor's schedule, looking at Kansas State's schedule, I would feel like even though the Cats have two of their final three on the road, Baylor still have to still has to play Texas on Saturday. They get Iowa State as well. It's, it's a much tougher three-game stretch for the Bears than it is for Kansas State. So I will go fact. I think Kansas State will finish third alone in the conference. Scott Drew coaches at Baylor for his entire career. I mean, he's been there for two decades. I don't see why Scott Drew would go anywhere else. And even if he is canned, which I would doubt that would happen because Baylor's still turning in 20-win seasons. They're also just a couple years removed from a national championship. Scott Drew's not going anywhere. I think he's going to coach there still probably the better part of a decade. And when he is done, I just don't see him going anywhere else. He's probably happy at Baylor. Baylor's going to be fine. But as far as getting back to a Final Four national title, they've got the talent. They can still recruit. But Maybe we'll start to see just how important Jerome Tang was to that coaching staff. But I'll go fiction. I don't think that Scott Drew will go anywhere else other than Baylor. Fact or fiction, Hunter Dozier plays more than 50 games for the Royals. I think it really comes down to if the Royals trade him or not. If the Royals don't trade him in spring training, Hunter Dozier is going to play more than 50 games, uh, whether he's a starter or not. I mean, 50 games is a really, really low total. And I feel like with a lot of young guys out there, some are going to struggle, some are going to get banged up, some are going to get sent back down to Omaha. And Hunter Dozier, as long as he's healthy, he can bounce around. He's not a guy that stays at one position. He can play third, he can play first, he can play right, he can play left. So I'm going to go fiction. He will play more than 50 games and not under that total. Factor fiction, Benny P leads the Royals in home runs. I think it's going to be between him and Salvador Perez. I'm going to go fiction. I don't think that he will lead them in home runs because I think that mark will go to Salvador Perez. And hopefully this year, Matt Quattrall and that coaching staff can kind of take a page. I can't believe I'm saying this. Take a page out of Mike Matheny's book from 2021 because Salvi DH'd a lot. And Salvi's not that great defensively. The analytics will tell you that. I know the eye test won't always tell you that. 
but Salvi was able to turn in one of the best seasons of his career in 2021 with his 48 home runs because he got off his feet a lot more, was DHing a lot. So I would hope if he DHs, he's going to turn in another high-power year where he can have 40-plus home runs, and I don't see Vinny P having more than 30 this year. And lastly, Dr. Fiction, the Nuggets and Celtics grab the top seeds in both conferences. Nuggets, absolutely. I think they're a runaway right now to get the top spot in the Western Conference. As for the East, it's either going to be Boston or it's going to be Milwaukee. Oh, man, my gut tells me it's going to be Milwaukee more than Boston, so I'll go Fiction. I think it'll be the Nuggets out of the West getting the number one seed, and then I think it'll be Milwaukee out of the East getting the top spot with Giannis Antetokounmpo. That wraps up another edition of The Shift on 94.5 FM and 1510 AM ESPN Kansas City. I've been your host, Jack Johnson, alongside Marco Marquez. We'll talk to you tomorrow at 10 AM. You take it easy, Kansas City.